Chapter 19 of Regiment of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. Regiment of Women by Clemens Dane. Chapter 19. The examination had taken place early in May, but the summer term was nearly over before news of the results arrived. When it came, it made but a small sensation. The school had tired of waiting. Not only was its own more intimate examination drawing near, but its many heads were filled, to the exclusion of all else, with the excitements and rivalries of the summer theatricals. The school play was an institution. Of late years, ever since she had joined the staff indeed, it had grown into an annual personal triumph for Miss Hardham. Claire was blessed, cursed, with that sixth sense, the sang du théâtre, her own nature was, in essence, theatrical, her frigid and fastidious reserve warring incessantly with her irrepressible love of the scene for its own sake. She was aware of the trait, and humiliated by its presence in her character. Usually she would curb her inclination with a severity that was in itself histrionic. At times she indulged it with voluptuous recklessness. As a girl, this stage had appealed to her strongly, but her excessive squeamishness, with her acute sense of personal, bodily dignity, closed it to her as a career. Also her love of power. Though she knew little of stage life, she had sufficient intuition to gauge correctly what she might become. Successful necessarily, dominant never. And she required a daze. But the compelling woman, she knew, is successful through a combination of intellectual strength with sexual charm. She must not scruple to use all the weapons at her service. Claire had told herself that there were some weapons to which she would never condescend. If Stink had lain in the fact that, though she would, they were not hers to use, she did not acknowledge it, even to herself. Resolutely she put from her the idea of fostering a useless talent, and the desire to exploit it, Saves surreptitiously in social intercourse, dulled as she grew older. Nevertheless, the yearly plays were to Claire a source of excitement and gratification. She alone was responsible for the production. In five successful years they had become an event, a festival, not only to the school, but to the entire neighborhood. Two and then three public performances were given each summer, and the proceeds benefited the school charities. As you like it, Twelfth Night, Verona, and The Merchant of Venice followed upon the Midsummer Night's Dream and exhausted the list of entirely suitable plays. But after some hesitation, Claire had devised for her next venture scenes from King John. Several forms were studying the period. The sixth and the fifth were reading the play. Politically also it was apropos. Claire had ever sound reasons to gild her decisions. Privately, she had been slightly embarrassed by the fact that the classes she supervised had, that year, proved themselves unusually poor in dramatic ability. She could depend, indeed, on a score of keen and capable children, but in Louise Denny alone had she glimpsed an actress who could do her credit. The child's physique precluded her from roles that, otherwise, she could easily have filled, but as Prince Arthur, she could be made the central, unforgettable figure of an otherwise trite performance. King John, quoth Clare, decidedly the very play, and King John was chosen. 
since the beginning of the term, with Claire as Generalissimo and Alwyn most ingenious of adjutants, staff and school had worked enthusiastically. Costumes were finished, staging painted and planned, and the various scenes were, at length, receiving their final polish. Alwyn was responsible for the interpretation of the minor parts, while Claire, in her spare time, devoted herself to the principals, attacking alternately the exaggerations of Agatha's Constance, Marion's stolid Hubert, a certain nearsighted amiability in the spectacled King John. Claire was a born stage manager, patient, resourceful, compelling. The children trusted her. She had the habit of success. Her air of authority cushioned them, denied the possibility of failure. Claire, wholly in earnest, Claire at usual hours, intimate and relaxed, Claire appealing, exhorting, inspiring, was irresistible. She got what she wanted from them and was not ill-content. She knew, to the last ounce, their capabilities. With Louise alone, she had difficulties. The child was almost too easily trained. Responsive, quickly fired or chilled, she was, in fact, too delicately and completely attuned to Claire herself. Claire could be crude. She had her gusty moods. The little Aeolian harp quivered to snapping point before them. Originally, this extreme sensitiveness had fascinated Claire. She felt like a musician exploring the possibilities of an unknown instrument, but she tired of it in time. As Louise became saturated with a stronger personality, she had, in her passionate desire to satisfy Claire, grown into her mere replica, reproducing her phraseology, voicing her opinions, reflecting her moods, stifling in the exquisite delight of abnegation, all in her that had originally attracted the older woman. That the effect had been, first to amuse, then to irritate, finally to bore Clara's fickle humor, was natural enough. Claire, had she cared, could have guided the child, despite the great disparity of age, into a pleasant path of affection and friendship, but that she did not choose. She was disappointed and showed it, and there, for her, the matter ended. That she was in any way responsible, she would not admit. She did not, indeed, fully realize the extent of the change in Louise until the rehearsals began. For all her growing indifference, in spite of the marked deterioration that automatically it had caused in the girl's work, she had still a high and just opinion of her capabilities. She was positive that as Prince Arthur, Louise would give a fine and original performance, and anticipated with amused interest her initial rendering of the character. At the first rehearsal, Louise did not disappoint her. She was neither stiff nor self-conscious, and her acting, which proved to be entirely instinctive, carried conviction. Though Claire worked from the head, she could appreciate the more primitive method, but even then, the character as portrayed by Louise amazed her. The deliberate pathos, the cloying charm, did not seem to exist for Louise. She played as in an ecstasy of terror. The text, Claire knew, could permit the reading, and the conception interested her. But the temptation to criticize, alter, and improve was natural. Here and there, as rehearsals progressed, she pulled and patched and padded, quite genuinely in the interest of the play as a whole. But the result was discouraging. 
The Louise of former days would have defended her own version, delighting Claire with shy impudences and flashes of insight, naive parries and counterattacks, till between them they had attained notable results. But the sparkle had been drilled out of Louise. She was humble, anxiously acquiescent, agreeing with every alteration, accepting every suggestion, however foreign to her own instinctive convictions, while the vividness faded slowly from a reading, leaving it lifeless and forced. "'It's patchwork,' said Claire, disgustedly to Alwyn, at the end of the third week. "'Pure patchwork. She does everything I tell her, and the result is dire. What it will be like on the night, heaven knows. And there's nobody else. Yet she can act. That first performance was quite excellent.' "'And she tries.' She slaves. She would be less irritating if she didn't. You know, Alwyn, I let myself go yesterday. I told her how impossible she was, and all she did was to look at me like a mournful monkey. Inarticulate. Exactly. Claire lifted her eyebrows. Alwyn looked at her quaintly. You know perfectly well what's wrong. Why on earth don't you leave her alone? Uncoached? That as well, of course. You said yourself she was excellent at first. Why don't you leave her to herself? It's safe. She's not like the others. She's a nectarine, not a potato. Give her a free hand till the dress rehearsal. It won't be your reading. I prefer yours, too. At least I think I do. I'm glad you say think. But think again. There's no question of which you ought to prefer. But I, my good child, must consider my public... It wants to enjoy itself. It wants to weep salt tears. Louise's reading would cheat it of its emotions. At least it will be a reading, not a repetition. I don't mean that, though, when I say, leave her alone. Claire, you won't realize what you mean to people. I don't follow, but Claire laughed a little. You do. You know you've made Louise crazy about you. Claire shrugged impatiently. I dislike these enthusiasms. But you cause them. I think it is rather mean to shirk the consequences. Really, Alwyn, Claire was still smiling. You do. You begin by being heavenly to people, and then you tantalize them. Does it hurt, Alwyn? Are you going to run away? Alwyn smiled. Oh, you won't get rid of me so easily. I'm a limpet. Do you know, I couldn't imagine existence without you now. I've never been so gloriously happy in my life. You wouldn't ever get really tired of me, would you? I wonder. I know. I've warned you that I'm changeable. Instance, you're Louise. Oh, Claire, do be nicer to Louise. Oh, Alwyn, do mind your own business. I'm as nice as is good for her. But I believe you're right about this acting. I'll wash my hands of her till the dress rehearsal, if you like. You can tell her I said so. But Alwyn, whispering to Louise that perhaps the old way was better after all, that Miss Hartle said she didn't mind, achieved little. Oh, Mr. Anne, don't let her think I'm hopeless. I shall get it right in time. I'd rather stick to the way she showed me. Mr. Anne, do you think she's angry? Honestly, I will get it right. Mr. Anne, I suppose there's no news? The child's face was very drawn. Her eyes seemed larger than ever. She looked like a little old woman. Alwyn was concerned. She felt vaguely responsible, 
She, too, wished that the news, good or bad, would come, and put an end, at least, to the tension. And one morning, all unexpectedly, the news did come. The performances were but two days away. The decorous big hall was in confusion. The school sat, picnic fashion, for its prayers, and the headmistress, entering between half-hung cloths, mounted a battlemented rostrum to address it. She carried a sheaf of papers. Louise, sitting with her class at the further end of the hall, outwardly decorous enough, was in reality paying little attention. Her vague, unhappy thoughts were concerned with the coming rehearsal. She could not remember what Miss Hartle's last directions had been. She was sure she should stumble. Sometimes the mere words seemed to evade her. Yet the play was on her shoulders. Miss Durand had said so. She supposed Prince Arthur was really fond of Hubert? Not pretending because he was afraid? But of course it was easy to love a person and yet be terrified of them. She stole a look at Claire, prominent in the grave group of mistresses. They were all very intent. It dawned on her that the headmistress had been speaking for several minutes. Suddenly there was an outburst of clapping. The spectacled girl at the end of the row grew pink and stared at her hands. "'What is it?' breathed Louise. "'Oh, what is it? What is it?' A neighbor caught the murmur and looked down at her curiously. "'Are you asleep? It's the list. Your exam. You'll be second, I expect.' But Marion was second. The clapping crackled up anew. "'So the news was come. It was cruel to let it spring upon you thus.' You would have asked so little. Ten minutes. A bear. In which to brace yourself. Surprise was horrible. It caught you with your soul half naked. It shocked like sudden noise. There came a fresh outburst. It was wicked to make such sounds. Like all the policemen's rattles in the world. The reading proceeded. It calmed her. It barely stirred the beautiful silence. But presently the neat voice altered. Old Edith Marsham was a kindly soul. She had not quite forgotten her own school days. She realized, perfunctorily, as the success will do, the blankness of defeat. Louise heard her name pronounced, a trifle hurriedly. Louise Denny failed. She made no sign. She sat erect, listening to the conclusion of that matter, clapped in due course, stood, kneeled, rose again, as applause, hymns, and prayers buzzed about her, filed with her class from the hall, and added her shy word to the clamor of congratulation in the long corridors. Inwardly, she was stunned by the evil that was upon her. The irregular morning classes, the imminent entertainment had disorganized the entire system of work, gave her time to rouse, to review her position. She turned helplessly within herself, wondering how she should begin to think, and where? She wondered idly if this was how soldiers felt, when a shell had blown them to pieces? She wondered how they collected themselves afterwards? Where did they begin? Did an arm pick up the legs and head, or how? The picture thus conjured up struck her as excessively funny. She began to giggle. The mistress's astonished voice roused her to the necessity for self-control. She picked up her pen. The thoughts flowed more clearly. Yes, like ink in a pen. So it had come. All along she had known that she must have failed, known it from the day of the examination itself, 
The burden of that knowledge had been upon her for weeks like a secret guilt. Daily she had gone to prayers in cold fear, thinking, Now, 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 they will read it out. Daily she had studied Clara's face. To each change of expression, each abstraction or transient sternness, her heart beating out its one thought. She had heard. She knows. And yet behind her academic certainty of failure had lain a little illogical hope. There was just a chance, an examiner more kind than just, a spilled ink bottle, an opportune fire. The child in her could still pray for miracles, for help from fairyland, and half believe it on the way. And now the daily terrors, the daily reliefs, were alike over. Louise, who had learned, as she thought, to do without hope these many weeks, realized pitifully her self-deception. This hopelessness, this dead weight of certainty, was a new burden, a Sisyphus rock which would never roll for her. She was at the end. Her mind, for all its forced and hot-housed development, had, in matters of raw fact, the narrow outlook of the schoolgirl superimposed upon the passions, the more intense for their utter innocence of the child. Her sense of proportion, that latest developed and most infallible sign of maturity, was embryonic. The examination, so intrinsically unimportant, appeared to her a waterloo. She could not see beyond it. Claire, inexplicably altering, daily sterner and more indifferent, save for stray gleams of whimsical kindness that stung and maddened the child by their sweetness and rarity, would, Louise considered, be effectually alienated. But Louise could not conceive life possible without Claire. The future was a night of black misery, without a hint of dawn. End of chapter 19 Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen Gilbert, Arizona